Well, good morning, Sailorville. Good morning. Yeah, that's nice enthusiasm. Appreciate that very much. Let's see how enthusiastic we are about getting into God's Word as we encourage you, starting this brand new series, Your Questions, God's Answers, by turning to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. As uh, Curtis was giving those uh, VBS reviews, you saw the video, I'm reminded of, uh, of uh, several years ago, I was 5,000 miles from here with my wife and some friends. We were in Venice, Italy, and uh, we were getting on one of these water taxis to take us into that city with 400 bridges, and, and uh, it was just us, the other couple, and one other young couple right next to us and all the luggage. And we're making our way to our hotel, and the lady next to me was just staring at me. It was really getting kind of awkward. And uh, I finally looked at her, and she goes, um, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. She goes, did you pastor a church in northern Iowa for a while? I said, I did. She goes, I was in your vacation Bible school. I can't get away from anybody. I was so stunned by the question in the person, I never thought to ask if it made any difference in her life. And as was mentioned earlier, we had almost 400 kids in our vacation Bible school, and and a lot of people asked the question, well, were there any salvations? And my answer is, we'll see. Yes, there were a lot of professions, several at least, but we'll see. I have this series, uh, uh, that is the, what we're calling it, what we're doing throughout this summer. I have, at least in part, I need to thank my neighbor. Her name is Amy. Uh, she's a sweet little wife and mother, has some kids, and goes to another Bible-believing church. Not this one. We're not proselytizing them at all, but because we're next to our neighbors, and apparently she figures, since I'm a pastor, I can answer all these questions that are theological. She has a theological mind. So about a year ago, she started asking me questions, and I would, and they were not, they were not unique. That is, a lot of these questions have been asked over the many years I've been doing ministry, and I realized several years ago, I should be writing these down so I don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. And so I thanked Amy for that, because I started to compile them. In fact, I uh, told her that if I ever wrote a book, I think I'd title it Answers for Amy. So uh, I am grateful to her for that. And we are going to biblically tackle many of these perplexing questions uh, in sermon form. And the first one before us today is, why do my kids rebel? So uh, that's a good question, isn't it? And, uh, and so, for starters, I want to go to the 78th Psalm and read several of these verses where we, we begin. It says, Give ear, O people, to my teaching, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Now he's getting into the subject matter. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that 
they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their, for, or their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. If you skip down to verse 22, in spite of all that God did, because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Ten verses later in 32, in spite of all that God has done, they still sinned despite his wonders. They did not believe. So again, the question, why do my kids rebel? Why does anybody rebel? Especially those who witnessed the hand of God in their lives and in their family or in their church. And there are reasons, but before we get into those, just a couple of things. I mean, this is going to be one of those sermons, it's just going to be a just... just a, just a cavalcade of answers and maybe a, you know, like a fire hydrant of, of answers to several of our questions. And you're gonna, if you're a note taker, I beg you to put the pen down. Uh, we promise to send these out in an email and uh, because they're lengthy sentences, you might miss them. I really want you just to assimilate the truth that I'm sharing with you today. And also, the, the principles here apply to everyone. So really, if you're single or if you're older, don't check out. This will encourage you as well. And my heart is to encourage you today. Many of you have had kids who've walked away from the faith. Your hearts are broken. You're confused. You feel responsible. You feel guilty. Some of you are wondering you know, why you put so much time and effort and money into their lives so they would just kick to the curb everything you handed them that was precious and spiritual and all about Jesus. Was it worth it? Many of you have kids and they're really little and you're worried about them and their future in a world that is increasingly hostile to the faith. You have every reason to be concerned. And some of you are without a care in the world. I mean, my Johnny would never defect from the faith. I remember in my first uh, uh, pastorate, I was talking to this farmer whose kid was, uh, his, his kid was a total rebel. And uh, I was talking to him and trying to help his kid. And my kids, I had seven kids, you know, they were all, you know, seven years old and younger or something like that. They were all real little. And... Uh, and uh, he, was saying, he, he said, you wait till your kids are teenagers. They're going to turn on you. And I said to him, I remember, I stood in his driveway on his farm. My kids won't do that because I'm going to raise them biblically. <laughs> he's gone now, but if he's in heaven, I'm sure he's had a couple of chuckles since that conversation. <laughs> In fact, uh, someone even suggested when they saw that I was preaching, why don't you just put pictures of your own kids up there as examples? Ha ha, very funny. <laughs> Actually, not a bad idea. So you got a son that's so tender-hearted, it's unimaginable that he would ever rebel. <laughs> One that's so compliant, he would never doubt. So chill, 
he would never cause any trouble. <laughs> so sweet, she would never lie. And she was such a liar when she was little. By the way, I got permission from all of them. And I'll just stop there, okay? The rest of the family are going. <laughs> We're going to look at six parental reminders, two types of rebels, and four reasons to be encouraged. That's a lot. That's why I want you to just take all of this in, okay? Just take it in, and whatever grabs you, grab it, okay? First six parental reminders to all of you. Here's the first one. Biblical theology, your biblical theology, reminds you only God can save. Uh, Jonah put it best. Salvation is of the Lord. I mean, that's all you got to know, right? I can't save my kids, and neither can you. So beware of presumption, or what some of you have heard me call cake box Christianity, which some of you are guilty of. You just don't realize it. Theologically, you, you understand that God saves, but then you think it's all you that does the saving. It, it's the weirdest thing. The cake box mentality is you take the box out of the cupboard, you turn it around, you see the recipe, you grease the pan, you put the eggs and the flour and the vanilla and all of this in there. You set the thing at 350, you put it in the oven. It's going to be a cake every time, right? Until it isn't a cake. It doesn't turn out. That's bad theology. You check out the sons and daughters of godly men in the Bible who did not embrace the faith of their fathers, and they are legion. They are many. There's a lot of them. And this should keep all of us very humble. It will also help to guard you and me from becoming judgmental. When godly parents inexplicably produce an ungodly kid or two, as if it's all on them. And shame on you when you do that, because you're showing your own pride and presumption. So, a second parental reminder, your duty reminds you God uses you to save your kids, and I did not contradict myself. God does the saving. But remember when Paul affectionately spoke to Timothy, his disciple, he said this. He said, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first with your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. And it does not escape our attention that neither Timothy's father or grandfather are mentioned in this. Many a woman, many a wife, Many a mother has had to go it alone for the glory of God. But no question about it that the mother and the grandmother were inculcating truth into Timothy's life. That's the idea here. And so when Paul says in Ephesians 4, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go, here it is, that it may go well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but train them or bring them up in the nurture and admonition or instruction of the Lord. I take it when Paul said that, he's saying, moms and dads, God is using, in the mystery of it all, he is using your actions, your faith, and your character to convince your children of the genuineness of the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. 
Your duty reminds you that God uses you to save your kids. Remember that. Thirdly, your Bible reminds you it has intrinsic power in and of itself to produce saving faith. Listen, this is not, this is not a magic book, but it is a miraculous book. And you have to believe that. You have to train your kids through the Word of God, through devotions, through conversations around the Word of God. Don't give them cheesy little lines that men make up. Give them truth. Because this is the only book of the promise to change their life and give them eternal life. Here's how Paul put it to Timothy in that very same epistle. Timothy, he said, from, from brephos, that's the Greek word which means from infancy, you have known or been acquainted with the Holy Scriptures, that's the Bible, which is able to, look at this, make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the power of God's word. He said the same thing to the Ephesian elders when he said, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to sanctify you, give you an inheritance amongst the saints. This has never been more powerful to me in a story I've shared before, but it's certainly worth retelling. Several years ago, in my office, one of the secretaries buzzed in and said, hey, there's a guy by the name of Paul Kramer. He's been calling for weeks. He's a missionary. I think he's just trying to kind of, you know, wiggle his way in like a lot of them do. And, uh, you know, we're, we, it's not an agency we support, but he says he knows you, and he just keeps calling. So do you want to take it or not? And I said, Paul Kramer. The only Paul Kramer I know I wrestled with back in high school like 40 years ago, and that was him. I took the call. He said, geez, Nimmers, what's it take to, to get through to you? I said, well, I am a very important person. I'm just going <laughs> to say that to him. He, says, uh, he said, look, I'm just calling to say thanks. And I said, uh, okay, what are, you, what are you thanking me for, Paul? He goes, you, you don't remember, do you? I said, what am I supposed to remember? He said, Nimmers, 25 years ago, we were in line at a wedding at the reception, and you, you were right in front of my wife and I, and you and your wife shared your testimony with us, and you told me that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father except through him. He, he, he said, do you remember that? I said, I, no. He goes, well, let me tell you something. That conversation haunted me for 22 years. Every single day for 22 years, I thought of that conversation. And three years ago, I trusted Christ as my Savior. So did my wife. We're on our way to Thailand to be missionaries. And that's where they are today. So if the Bible is like a time-release capsule, the timing is in God's hands to unleash it in the hearts and minds of people. So again, the Bible reminds us it has intrinsic power in and of itself. Remember that, Mom. Remember that, Dad, as you disciple your own children. Fourth. Your balance between grace and truth will help your kids in heavy times. Uh, just the other day, our own discipleship pastor, Jason, uh, we were talking together uh, with some others, a committee, about how we can make our, our church more biblically literate, more Bible savvy, uh, more substance. And Jason made a great line. He said, we don't want lopsided Christians. And boom, that registered with me. A lopsided Christian is, would be, if, if you're a person who's all grace, then you're not really worth much of anything. You're just mamsy, pamsy, Casper, Casper, milk toast, anything goes, because you're so gracious. 
And if you're all truth and no grace, then nobody can be around you because you're shoving stuff down people's throats. Why don't you be like Jesus? Because the Bible says that Bible, and we're trying to get into more people more like Jesus, and there it is. There it is. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory of, you know, the only son of the father. And there it is, full of grace and truth. He didn't have a little bit of grace, a little bit of truth. He was full of both. And this is what we need as parents, the filling of grace and truth so that we won't become lopsided. Our kids, how does this work? Your kids need to know that they have the freedom with their dad and their mom to express their weaknesses in a given moment and let them wrestle through that thing. My son Josh is in the room here this morning. I got his permission to share this, but he was, he, when he was in high school, uh, he was hanging out with some kids and they dabbled, they, they, they were smoking some weed and obviously that didn't go over real well with me. And uh, so I had this conversation, I can still picture it. My, my, I was leaning into the door frame of his bedroom. He was sitting at the chair at his desk. And I, in, a, in a moment of frustration, I said, Josh, you know what you believe. And Josh looked right at me. He said, Dad, sometimes I have no idea what I believe. <laughs> you could have knocked me over with a feather right in the moment. And in that moment, God spoke to my heart. And I'm emotional about it because I'm just grateful to God because I could have done something terrible. I could have wrecked his faith right there. It's like God said, embrace him in his struggle. Embrace that doubt. Help him to walk through this thing. And by the grace of God, that's what I did. Your balance between grace and truth will help your kids in the heavy times of their lives. Fifth, your own sanctification's on the line here. It's occurring throughout the struggle of your child. Keep that in mind. It's not always about them. It might be more about you. I can't count the number of times. In fact, I can tell you there hasn't been a struggle my kids have ever had that it didn't come back on me as if God was saying, hey, you know, this is more about you than about them. Bingo. Where God has revealed personal idols in my own life through self-examination and my own personal motives. So your sanctification is occurring in this process. you got to embrace that. And sixth, your hypocrisy will pave the way for their rebellion. Just count on it. Colossians 3.21, similar to parallel passage of Ephesians, here's what it says in Colossians 3.21, Fathers, don't provoke your children, lest they become, and literally the word discourage means to gut them, it means to gut them, gut their spirit, to dispirit them. And you know, that's what you do when you're through your anger, through your overreaction. And, and, and you're not perfect. I get it. There have been many times where I just, oh, I hated myself for what, the way I responded. But there's a fascinating case study on hypocrisy in the life of Eli. Don't go there, but in second, or 1 Samuel 2, that's where you find it. He's got a couple of sons. They're absolute reprobates, and they're also priests. They're committing sexual immorality with women. They're stealing stuff from people who bring their sacrifices. And throughout the account, there are several slices I want to show you. Uh, referring to Hophni and Phinehas, it says, they did not know the Lord. Well, that'll, 
they did not know the Lord. I mean, that's where you got to start with your kids. They don't know God. Uh, here's another slice. They would not listen to the voice of their father. Now, why would that be? Let me give you the answer to that. If you studied the life of Eli, he was a, he was a, a believer. He, he is in heaven. There was a, a real semblance of godliness. This is the man that saw Hannah praying, prophesied that she'd have Samuel. It happened. It's also the guy that, uh, that God would severely rebuke. He was an undisciplined man. In fact, the, the addendum, the epitaph on his life when he does die is he was a heavy man. So he's an undisciplined man. And if you look at his... If you look at his uh, warnings of his sons, he does warn them. It's, it's kind of like slaps on the hand every time. Don't, please don't, oh, please don't do it. Please, 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 please. It's almost pretty, please don't do this. And you, you just, just a mere reading of the text, you can tell he's in a bad place with his two reprobate sons. He's a lopsided man. He was given more, way more toward grace and very little towards truth. And how do I know that? Because of the addendum of his life. Another prophet comes into his life and lays it on the line and says, you honor your sons above God. Just stare at that. Every parent should stare at that line. You honor your sons above God. If that's what you're doing, then stop wondering about the consequences. When my wife and I were at critical mass with our two youngest, we made a plan. We knew that our ministry was in jeopardy. It, the scandal was almost ready to break. And we decided in tears, that we were going to, I don't know any other way to put it, kick them out of the house. That's what we were going to do. When they turned 18, they were gonna, we were going to make them leave. And we had, the plan was in play. And then God intervened. Hallelujah. Converted them. Listen, godly discipline will not guarantee your child's righteousness, but ungodly discipline the unwillingness to act and do the hard things almost guarantees their ungodliness. You know the plethora of Proverbs, right? Spare the rod, spoil the child. You spare the rod, he who hates his son spares the rod. You love the son, you discipline him. The Hebrew says, early on. And then later on, Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof bring correction. Have you ever read that? So there's the combination of the two. And so, well, when do we stop spanking? You ought to know that. The rod and reproof bring correction, but the child that's left to himself brings shame. We'll talk in the podcast this week about th the three C's of discipline. We don't have the time for it this morning. I want to move on to the two types of rebels because that's the subject that we're dealing with. Why do my kids rebel? The two types of rebel, well, the first one's like a, a great big duh. They're not saved. Let's start there. Stop assuming 
Johnny prayed the prayer, and so Johnny's saved. He might be. He might not be. Because if anyone's in Christ, even Johnny, he's a what? A new creation. If there's no new creation, there's no salvation. Don't get hung up on the salvation prayers. Oh, I know you. I was there when you prayed that prayer, honey. What? You know, there's a fascinating uh, commentary that John has when Jesus starts his miracle ministry shortly after the uh, wedding at Canaan, the, turning the water to wine. People got excited about Jesus. Here's, what, here's how John puts it. It says, and many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Bravo, hallelujah. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. You see the word believe there? And you see the word entrust? They're the exact same root word in the Greek. Pistis, it means to believe. In essence, what this scripture is saying is people were believing Jesus, but Jesus wasn't believing in them. Why? The tail in Charlie is why. He knew what was in them. He knows what's in you. Some of you have prayed prayers. You've walked aisles. You've done all kinds of everything but cartwheels down the aisle, but you've never been saved. You've never really leaned into and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the evidence is when you leave. So when 1 John says, 1 John says, they went, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, that it might be made manifest or plain that they were not all of us. So when they leave, they leave the faith, they walk away, there's the evidence. Right there, they were never saved. Some of you are familiar with the fact that the great pastor and theologian that many of us admire deeply, John Piper, uh, his son Abraham, uh, don't get on Google and start looking it up now, but his son Abraham is, uh, is now, has now infamously denied the faith and has not only that, but he's gone on a blatant and blasphemous assault on Christianity on TikTok, it's all over YouTube, and he is absolutely blasphemous. I just, I just cannot imagine how this is tearing the heart of his father out. Somebody texted me the other day to ask me what my, you know, basically what was my take on it, sent me one of those TikToks, and I, I responded, this was the exact text. I said, my heart grieves for John Piper every time his reprobate son opens his mouth. I pray God shuts his big mouth and opens up his hard heart. But some of us would see that and say, well, where did John Piper screw up? What kind of arrogance is that? How do you know he screwed up? And who are you to say such a thing? I'm going to show you something. It's not going to sit well with some of you. I'm telling you right now. This, what I'm about to show you, is not going to sit well with some of you. But you remember the story of Samson. So here's Samson, who is a, he's a derelict. You know, he's apparently trust God, uh, but he is, he's, he's, he's the quintessential illustration of a carnal man. He says to his mom and dad, he finds a Philistine wife, I want her. They go, hey, how about one of the little Jewish girls who love God? How about them? No, I want her. Remember, that's, that's what the story has. But what a lot of you don't remember, you've read it, you just sort of read over like, eh? 
and you read over it. It's a parenthetical thought, but here it is. Let me show it to you. At that moment, his parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. Huh? I mean, his rebellion... The Lord has made all things for himself, even the wicked for the day of judgment. Have you ever read that? So what's going on here? Well, it tells us. God had bigger plans in mind than just that isolated incident. So be careful when you start judging people. This this falls into the the realm of uh, all the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, Romans 11.33. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So the first type of rebel is just the lost one. He's, he or she's, they're not saved. The second one is those who are saved with little or no evidence of being saved. This, this, is, this is the prodigal. This is the prodigal. When, when my sons, our sons, were, you know, putting us at our wit's end, people would come and privately say, how can we pray for John and Daniel? And I would always say, well, pray that they'll be converted, whatever converted means. And it was the perfect prayer request, as it turns out. John needed to be saved. Daniel just needed to get right with God. They both needed to be converted, amen? Here's a question. How many of you who were raised in Christian homes would acknowledge that at one part in your life, you were a prodigal. If that's true, and you have the guts to show it, stand up right now. Just stand up right now. Stand up. Stay up. Look at this. Look around. This this should encourage you, moms and dads. This should encourage you. You may be seated. And this is, speaking of encouragement, that's where I want to spend the balance of our time here is four reasons to be encouraged, okay? Here's the first. God really does know how you feel. He really does. People would ask me and have from time, how did you get through those years with those two that were just driving you insane? And I would answer with this you want to know the scripture that god held me up with here it is isaiah chapter 1 verse 2 hear o heavens and give ear o earth for the lord has spoken children i have reared and brought up but they've rebelled against me that passage of scripture held me up what greater father could there be than father god who reared up children the children of israel and they rebelled against him And you might say, well, that's a morbid way to be encouraged. I don't care what you want to call it. I was encouraged by it. You think about it. Christianity is the only religion that presents a God who has felt rejection, felt betrayal, felt denial, felt being misunderstood, felt being mistreated un- and uh, unjustly. 
and watched his own son die before his very eyes. So, mom and dad, God knows, God feels, God cares, God loves way deeper than you could possibly imagine. You can trust him and his time. God's knowledge of your pain isn't just hard fact to him, it's heartfelt to him. And this is why the writer of Hebrews says you can come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace in your time of need because you don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with your weaknesses but was tempted in every way like you yet without sin. That's why we come boldly to him. Secondly, here's a second encouragement. The good is in the together. Okay, here's what I mean by that. You know the verse. All things work together for, together, good. Those who love God, those who are the called according to his purpose, right? The other day, my wife was making a cake, and uh, she was making a chocolate cake, and I, I looked on the counter, and I saw all the things that she was going to put together to make this cake, and I wouldn't have eaten any of them individually. They looked awful. But together? They turned out to be a delicious chocolate cake. And that's the idea. The good is in the together. If you isolate all the struggles and, and, and trials and vicissitudes that you're going through, you are going to be discouraged. But you got to keep the together in mind. Always. Here's how Tom Bissett in his book, Good News About Prodigals, puts it. Personal brokenness has been one of the principal means by which God has revealed himself to his people. Sorrow and pain are God's messengers. What's more, they bring seeds of our healing and restoration so that we can bring not only praise to God, but blessing to others. A third encouragement is the gospel comes alive in the pursuit of your wayward child. This is really big. The gospel comes alive, or at least should, in your pursuit of your wayward child. Why did God ever choose you anyway? If indeed he did. I got news for you. It had nothing to do with you. Because God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. So here's a mother, and here's a son who is a rebel. He was raised in one of the godly families of this church that goes back a couple of generations, the Carlson family. Keith Carlson uh, was in high school and then beyond, and he was rebelling. He was living with a bunch of some friends. They were smoking weed. The weed was literally filling the entire house up with smoke. The mom, Donna, was the secretary of this church for 35 years. And she came knocking on his door while they were having a party. He didn't. He, he, Keith goes to the door, opens the door. The, the pot is literally wafting out. And his mom is standing there with a homemade pie that she made for her son. She said nothing about what was going on, the smell or what was happening. She just gave him the pie and expressed her love for him. And Keith testifies to this day, that was the moment that changed his life and turned him back to God. What am I saying? 
I am saying this. Some of you need to stop making noise and start making pies. The gospel comes alive in the pursuit of a wayward child. Lastly, your faith is tested in the waiting. Weeks ago, someone very close to my heart communicated to me in a difficult circumstance and said, when is God going to show up? And he would show up big time for this individual, but not on their timetable. Isaiah put it like this, blessed are all those who wait for him. Have you ever read that? Blessed are all those who wait for him. You want some encouragement? In this excellent book, Tom Bissett did the study, and this is crazy. In his book, Good News About Prodigals, he says, wait for it, 85% of prodigals return home. Is that not encouraging? 85% of those who walk away come back. That's hope, is it not? That's hope. It reminds me of, in our first ministry, there was, a, there was a man in his 80s, one of the most godly men I've ever met in my life. If you cut him, he would have bled Bible verses. And he, uh, he was walking through the foyer one day, and there was another woman who was like the Priscilla, and her husband was the Aquila of our, of our ministry. Godly people, soul-winning people, discipling people, but they had a daughter who about 13 or 14 years of age trusted Christ, showed some fruit, but then went wayward. By the time she was 16 or 17, she was hanging out with all the wrong people, doing all the wrong things, cutting herself, walking in graveyards. And the mother who had been so used of God was in the foyer that night, and she was weeping. And George seeing her weeping, walked up to her, put his hand on her shoulder and said, honey, what's wrong? And she just told him about her daughter, Colette. And George said, you know what Proverbs 22, 6 says, don't you? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. She knew that verse. And he looked at her in the eye and he said, is she old yet? And he walked away. It would be six painful more years, but Colette would turn back to God and she has never looked back since. Be encouraged. God is still on the throne. It's not all about you. It's not even all about your kid. And it might be more about you. Either way, God has his own way of bringing the wanderer back. You remain faithful until that end. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and bless you. For every parent in this room whose hearts are breaking right now over their child or their children, they weren't perfect. They acknowledge that. They've confessed their own sins. The parents have, that is, and they've done the best to bring their children and present them before you in the hopes that they would know you. But they've been reminded today that salvation is of you. And you're doing big things, much bigger than they could ever realize. 
help them to settle in on that right now. Every heart to be at peace. To know that you are God and your will will be done. Oh God, hear their prayers though. Capture their tears in your bottle. And respond for your glory and for the gospel's sake. I pray for those who are here or watching online who have never really repented of their sin. They've never been saved. If that's you, dear friend, the outside is cold and heartless. Come to Jesus who has a big heart for you and proved it with his death and resurrection. Encourage us otherwise today, Father God, as only you can do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.